And so it says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came about, when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking pot and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer as, as we pray for God to open our eyes um, through the Spirit to this text that we're looking into. And also, just go before the Lord in prayer again about, about um, the current situation in our nation and in the world. So let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father God, we begin um, by asking you again, Father, that you would um, show mercy on our world. God, that you would particularly show mercy on our community as we, um, God, continue to deal with the, the, the growing situation of, of illness um, caused by the coronavirus. Father, we know um, that you are a good and gracious and loving Father. Um, that you, as we have already talked about earlier in the last few weeks of this series, God, that you are a God who has chosen us. God, that you are a God who is gracious to us. And that means that you protect us. God, that means that you provide for us. Father, we are, are very aware of the fears that come along with those things right now. Um, we fear what the future holds, God. We, we are concerned about where our um, jobs will be in the coming weeks. We are concerned about um, the health of our loved ones and our own health, God. We we continue to wonder um, what the days ahead are going to hold, God, but we are promised in your word that you love us, that you have brought us into your own family, God, that you have, again, chosen us, and that you are graciously working in our lives to protect and to provide. And so, Father, we pray 
um, that you would give us a sense of those things, God, that you would give us a peace in all the things that we deal with in the coming um, weeks and months, Father. And on top of that, we pray for your mercy. We pray for your mercy on a world that oftentimes does not know you, and God even rejects and defies you. God, we, we pray that you would be kind to them. God, that you would not give us um, what we deserve, um, God, but that you would use this as a time um, to humble people, um, to make them recognize their weakness and their frailty, God, to make them um, turn their attentions to, to ultimate things, and that in doing so, that people would come to know your son, Jesus Christ, uh, and, and come into a relationship with him uh, by faith and repentance. Father, we pray this. Um, we beg you in the name of Jesus Christ um, to have mercy. God, as we come to this time where we look into your word and look into these things, um, we pray also for your mercy in terms of that. Um, we ask that you would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, shine uh, a light on this text, um, that we would see it rightly, that we would hear it rightly, that you would impress these things and imprint these things on our hearts and our understandings. God, that we would rest in you more, that we would understand you better, that we would trust in the gospel in a new and deeper way. God, that we would see Jesus Christ exalted and glorified in these things, and that we would recognize our own weakness. God, and that we would repent and turn to you in all these things, God. In short, that you would use every aspect of this um, to make us more like your son, that you would draw us into a conformity with his image. God, help us to do that in this time. Um, be with these people um, and work in us, uh, God, in every way um, that you see fit. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so we are um, talking, and we have been talking for a couple of weeks, um, about this idea of gospel glimpses in the life of Abraham. And so, so far, we have been through a couple of different things. So we've talked about, um, first off, uh, the, the idea um, that uh, the gospel is not God's plan B, right? The gospel has always been God's plan from the very beginning of the Scripture. Sometimes um, we get a, a picture maybe from, from uh, certain teachers or, or something like that that it was almost like, well, God tried some things and they didn't work, and then eventually he gets to Jesus and he tries that and it works or something. That is not the idea, that God's salvation has always come to us. It has always been plan A, and it has always come to us through grace by faith in Christ, all right? And so we've talked a couple of times already about, well, what are some specific aspects of this? If that's true, um, if there's, we should be able to see it throughout the Scripture, right? And we find that we do, especially in the life of Abraham. We see um, Abraham's life played out like a, a picture of the gospel. Almost every single chapter in the Abraham narrative has a new um, piece that we see displayed of what the gospel is. And obviously, we don't see all those pieces come together until, until the New Testament, until the life of Christ. But... but in hindsight, we can look back and see, say, God was already showing us what the gospel looked like. He was already showing us all these different pieces. So far, we've already talked about the idea of, of God choosing, that God chooses his people, right? And that is a function of his grace and goodness to us, that, uh, uh, that he chooses his people. And that choice is, is central to the idea of our security 
in Jesus Christ, right? That, that um, we trust because God is the one who has made the definitive decision, not us. And then later on we talked about the ideas of grace and faith, the idea that God comes to us in, uh, with a posture of grace towards us, right? So he is, he is favorably disposed to us. Um, he is there to watch over his people and to protect his people and provide for his people and that we respond to that grace and that positive predisposition that God has to us in faith. We trust God and we say, God, I'm going to believe that you are saying what is true and that you are going to do what you say you are going to do. Okay? And so we talked about last week, Abraham believed God, right? And it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay? And so, so this week we come to another idea, an idea that is central um, to the Scriptures, particularly to the Old Testament, runs through the whole um, uh, uh, Bible, um, and at the same time is, is a central concept when it comes to us talking about the gospel, and that is the idea of covenant. All right? And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at sort of four aspects. We're going to say, ask about what is the question that precedes the covenant here? What are the consequences of the covenant? What are the circumstances of the covenant? And then finally, what is the cost of the covenant? Okay. And so let's, um, uh, let's, let's sort of jump back real quick and start back up at verse 7. And look what it has to say to us as we kind of introduce this idea of the question that precedes the covenant, okay? So verse 7, it says, And he said to him, this is God talking to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Okay, so that's part of the promise that God has made to Abraham. We've already heard a couple of promises. That he's going to make him a great nation. That he is going to make his descendants like the stars in the sky, right? But then Abraham says something. Um, to, to God in verse 8. And he says, Yes, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Right? How do I know that you are going to keep your promise? You are saying these things to me, and certainly you have already been good and gracious to me, right? You have already chosen me out of nowhere in, in Ur of the Chaldeans. You have, you have shown your, your provision and grace to me as you have done all these different things for me, um, given me victory over my enemies, provided for me in various ways. But I, how do I know that you are going to keep your promises, God? Abraham's unsure, right? And we can sympathize with him, I think, right now, right? We are living in, probably for most of us, an unprecedented time of unsurety, right? Um, we were talking today about looking back to 9-11, right? Those weeks right after 9-11 were another time of, of uncertainty where we didn't know what the future was going to hold, right? We were, we were, looked like we were going to war with another nation and we had no idea what was going to happen in the, in the near future. Certainly those things happen in, in our, in our world every once in a while. Um, but for many of us, this has been the first one, right? This is the first time that you have dealt, um, with some of these ideas in in such a um, in-your-face kind of way. And so, again, Abraham's saying, man, I know you have chosen me, chosen me, God. Um, you've certainly been gracious to me, but how do I know? Okay? And, and what we find is this. God sort of, you could say it this way, and it's, it kind of sounds a little bit weird, but, but God says, okay, look, I'm going to formalize our agreement with each other, right? I'm going to for, formalize this, this agreement. And God responds, and he says, I'm going to make a covenant, with you. So what is a covenant? Right? What, what, what does that word mean? 
Well, on one side, you could kind of say it's a promise, right? It's, it's, it's a promise, but, but it's more than a promise, obviously, right? Because God's already made some promises um, to Abraham, and, 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 God, and Abraham's not comfortable with that, right? And so he wants something more, and a covenant is something more. One, one Bible commentator is, has defined it and said, a covenant is an oath bound relationship between two or more parties, okay? An oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. And there's a template for it that we see in the scriptures that is actually sort of mirrored in the culture of the ancient um, Middle East, okay? And that was this idea of what was called a suzerain treaty or a suzerain vassal treaty. Okay, so so a suzerain is just sort of a, a fancy name for a king, right? It's a person in position of power. Okay, and and then that person would enter into an agreement, a covenant with a vassal, um, a a city or a person or a nation state that was of less powerful. So you had a, a a more powerful entity and a less powerful entity that would enter into this covenant with each other. And in the process of that, promises would be made on both sides as to how they were going to go about this agreement. Um, Stipulations for the rewards for honoring the covenant would be made. And punishments for disobeying it were also established in the covenant, right? And so it's similar, you could say, to the idea that we have in our culture of a contract, right? It's something put down a little more officially, um, you could say, but there's one big difference, And that one big difference is this, is that contracts are made between equal parties or functionally equal parties, right? But that is not the exact situation with a covenant, certainly in the biblical context. And we see that problem even in in the way the Bible is translated, interestingly, from Hebrew into Greek. So when, when the Old Testament, written originally in Hebrew, was being translated into the Greek language, there were two different words that the Greeks, um, or those who were trying to translate it, could use to translate the word covenant. All right? One of them was diatheke, and the other one was syntheke. Okay? So diatheke um, was the one that ultimately was chosen, right? And it is the word um, that is, is also translated testament. So, for example, as in the last will and testament of somebody, right? So you can see how that idea of a last will and testament and a covenant, a contract with somebody, how the ideas connect, okay? But the word isn't perfect, okay? Because the problem with a a testament, a last will and testament, is that it can be changed at any point by the more powerful person, right? And so you have situations, even in in our modern society, right, where a person will make a will and decide who gets the things that they want them to after they die, um, but then maybe they get mad at somebody midway through it and they write that person out of the will, okay? And so that's not the picture that we have in the covenant. Um, and that's why the word was, they, they kind of debated about the word. But at the end of the day, it was still better than the other word. And the other word was syntheke, okay? And, and the deal is, is because that word implied the equality of the two people who were entering into the covenant with each other, Right? Um, and so the translators basically said, man, that cannot be the case, okay? It has to be something where th- the idea is there that one party is, is, is bigger and more important and more in control and more in power than the other one. And that's going to be super important in just a second. But Abraham is, is basically wanting to, to kind of lock down this situation, 
um, a, a movie that I loved from the 90s is called Jerry Maguire. Probably some of you have seen um, the movie Jerry Maguire. And there's this great kind of interchange at the beginning where Jerry Maguire has this client whose name is, is uh, Cushman. Like his last name's Cushman. Everybody calls him Cush, right? And he's like the star quarterback who's entering into the draft, right? And Jerry is presumptively going to be his agent. And he keeps on asking him and he's saying, hey, you know, can we get this thing in writing? Can we just write this down and get it formalized? And, and Cush's dad keeps on saying, I'm not big on contracts, but my word is my bond, right? It's stronger than oak. You can trust me. If I say something, I'm going to follow through with it. And so Jerry Maguire kind of backs off and lets it go. And so then what happens, if you remember in the movie, is that at some point, the dad gives the contract to another person. And Jerry comes back up there and he says, hey, could we get something in writing? And, and, and the dad's like, not right now. And he's like, listen, I need to get something in writing because... Um, I'm still unsure about this whole thing. And then the father reveals to him, well, we've actually decided to go with another agent, and we've already signed a document with him, right? It's that same kind of idea that's going on here. Abraham's nervous, okay? Um, He's nervous about trusting God, and he wants that relationship shored up in some ways. And so God basically says, cool, I'll make a covenant with you. I will give you this covenant where we are honor oath bound to each other and we will give the, the, the stipulations of this covenant, okay? And so that's sort of the, the, the question that, that initiates the covenant. But then we have another idea. What are the consequences of the covenant? Because that's key, right? Um, it's typical that the covenant would have some kind of reference to what would happen if the covenant was broken by either party, okay? And so in verse 9, we find out what that is. It says... He said to him, bring a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And he brought him all these, and cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, right? So these animals are slaughtered. And they are laid apart. They are spread apart by their halves. Their bodies are laid open. Okay? The flesh would be separated into two halves, and a path would be made between the two halves. All right? And this was a picture of the consequences for breaking the covenant. Okay? And so God is basically saying, hey, set up this ceremony for us that pictures what the covenant is like. To say that if we break the covenant, that there are these dire consequences for breaking the covenant. Okay? Now we're going to come back to that in just a minute, but I want you to notice a couple other things about this passage that set up the whole thing. So there's these two little lines there, starting one in, in verse 11. And it says this, it says, When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So what's the significance of that? Well, there's, there's one thing I think that is it, it, at least significant there. It, it, it points to the fact that Abraham was there for a while. Okay? He was there long enough for the birds of prey to start circling and coming down and picking at these, these animals. So think about this. He's sitting there with these dead animals laid out in the sun. Right? The heat. The smell. The flies. As the vultures and the crows and whatever else start to come down, they start to congregate, they start to circle, they start to swoop in and pick at the carcasses, right? And Abe is there for a while. And here's what I think happens. Abe begins to think about these things. He begins to think about the consequences of the covenant sitting before him. 
And he begins to say to himself, man, this, this deal that I'm making, this thing that God is asking of me, there are incredible consequences for failure here. Those consequences are stark. And, and let me maybe be frank and give an illustration. What if we started a new policy at our church and said, hey, guys, uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Uh, he wants to bless you. He wants to bring you into his family, but he expects obedience out of you. And so if you're willing to join into this covenant, we have to tell you that if you mess up, we're going to kill you, right? We are going to do to you what we have done to these animals that have been slaughtered and, 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 and cut in half. What would you say to that? Maybe an overzealous or a naive person right, would immediately step up and say, oh, yeah, yeah, count me in, man, I can do it. Uh, I, can, I can agree to those terms, right? But anyone who actually thought about it, anyone who knew themselves, anyone who spent any amount of time considering the cost of these things would come to a different conclusion, I think. Abraham stares at these carcasses all day long. And he, if he's even remotely honest with himself, he has to be thinking, I can't do this. I can't live up to um, what God is calling me to do. If I covenant with God, I am a dead man. God is too holy, right? He is too righteous. There is no way that I'm ever going to be able to live up to this thing. I'm going to end up like these animals. The consequences are too high. And so then it says in verse 12, look what, it, look what he says. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. I'm sure that darkness was supernatural, right? I'm sure that that was part of it. But I think it is also a picture, right, of the recognition of the dire circumstances that Abraham has found himself in. What can he do? Because here's the reality of our situation before God if it's just us stepping before a holy and just God. God has chosen me, and I dare not refuse him, but at the same time, I dare not join him because there's no way I'm going to be able to live up to this thing, and the consequences are literally deadly. So that's the situation that he finds himself in, right? That is the consequences of this covenant that is being made with Abraham. But there's also some circumstances that surround this covenant, right? So look again at verse 13. God informs Abraham of some circumstances of their covenant. Um, not the covenant itself exactly, but the road he will have to walk to see the covenant fulfilled. So verse 13 says, The Lord said to Abraham, No, for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your father in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." So we touched on this idea last week when we were talking about God's protection and God's provision. 
does the grace of God and the covenant of God mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you? And the answer is no. It does not mean that. In fact, in this passage, here God makes it clear that the bad, the hardship, the difficulty is actually part of the circumstances of the covenant, right? He is promising Abraham that there will be difficulties. He is promising Abraham that they're going to have to go through a lot of difficult stuff um, before the, the, the covenant can be perfected before the covenant can be um, fulfilled. He says, I will bless you, right? I will reward you. Your reward is going to be very great, but your people are going to spend 400 years in slavery, right? 400 years, man, that's a long time. Our country's barely 250 years old or whatever, right? It's not even 250 years old yet. Um, everything you remember, everything in living memory is is fraction of that, right? 400 years in slavery is a long time. And so I think, man, as we come into this coronavirus kind of situation, and and folks folks are getting post-apocalyptic real quick, right? Like they are thinking in those terms, like what could the fallout be from this thing? What is the cost of this thing going to be? What if the scenarios are the worst possible scenarios they could be? What is the cost going to be in human life? What is the cost going to be in society? What is the cost going to be of our economic welfare, right? All those questions are stirring in our heads. But here's the deal. Even if the worst happened, it would not discount the covenant of God. If... If this current crisis, or even a potentially greater crisis, right, is that evidence that God is not with us, that he has broken his covenant with us? And the answer is no. You should expect things like this. Difficult things are going to happen. Jesus told us that too, right? And so... We thank God when they don't happen, when we live at peace and safety and security and plenty. And when they don't and everything hits the fan, we humble ourselves, right? And we pray and we recognize that our life is a vapor and that God is the one who is in control ultimately and these things are in his hands at the end of the day. Because notice, God's got bigger plans going on than just Abraham's stuff. Verse 16, he says... It tells us that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. What is that talking about? He's basically saying, look, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. It is all going to be yours, I promise you. The problem is, like we talked about two weeks ago, somebody already lives here. There's somebody already here. But the deal is, is that right now, I am unwilling to judge those people and kick them out of the land right now. God shows mercy to even those who are currently defying him to those who he knows will never follow him. And yet he still shows mercy to them. And he says their wickedness has not raised to the level, has not ascended to the level that I'm willing to kick them off the land yet. I need, it's going to take about 400 years for that to happen. So guess what's going to happen? In the meantime, Abraham, your descendants are going to go down into slavery in Egypt. And again, we might look at that and say, man, God, couldn't you have done it another way? Right, because, because your mercy to this people is certainly putting Abraham in a difficult situation. Because he can't receive the promises until God has exhausted his mercy. And so it's complicated, right? There's a lot of moving pieces in this thing. And as always, you are not the primary player. 
That's what we have to remember. God has plans that you know nothing of. And we have to recognize that. And that's part of the whole process. When, when, when stuff goes crazy like it's going right now, man, we are humbled by those things. And we remember that we are not the bosses of our own lives. We just passed St. Patrick's Day, right? And, and you guys know we, we, every year at St. Patrick's Day, like we talk about him and stuff sometimes because I love St. Patrick. The, 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 I've got Scots-Irish ancestry, and so that's a piece of it. But, but the bigger piece is that I love the story of St. Patrick. I love the influence of St. Patrick. Um, he was born into a similar kind of world, right? He was born into a world where the Roman Empire was collapsing around them and barbarians were invading from, from all over the place, right? His way of life was changing on, on, a, on a monthly basis, right? And then he's captured and sent into slavery um, and, then, and then escapes and comes back and, and becomes a, a, a priest and a bishop and, and then goes back to Ireland, back to his enslavers um, because he knows that they need the gospel, okay? And so it's an it's a, it's a incredible picture of a man who is living in the midst of turmoil and, and his life is being personally affected by it on a daily basis. And yet he makes choices to follow God and be faithful to him no matter the circumstances, okay? And so the circumstances of the covenant are this. I can't tell you what they're going to be. Um, I can tell you there's probably going to be difficult things that happen in terms of our, our, our covenant that we have with God and our relationship that we have with God. Um, but we can trust him in all those things, right? Um, just because hard things are happening doesn't mean God has left us, doesn't mean he has been unfaithful to his covenant. So then the passage continues, and, and this is kind of where we get to the really, really cool part, the part that the gospel just sort of comes to the surface in in our text. And we call this the cost of the covenant. That's what, that's what we're looking at, right? So th- th- this darkness descends, it says, on Abraham, and he has this vision or whatever, this strange uh, 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 darkness, and, and this incredible thing happens during the process. So look at verse 17. It says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay? So here's the deal, and this is what we didn't mention earlier on. This ceremony that was, that was taking place, this splitting of the animals would progress like this. You would lay the animals apart and make this pathway through them, but both the king, the suzerain, and the vassal, the lesser important person, both people would walk through between the, 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 the animals, right? Both of them would walk the path. And that's because it was picturing something. It was saying this. Both of us have responsibilities here, right? This isn't like just the, 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 uh, the king, um, the, the person in power um, beating up and bullying the, the other person, right? The king is saying, I am making certain vows to you too. I'm promising certain things to you too. We both have responsibilities to live up to in this covenant. And if we don't, the consequences are severe, right? The consequences are before us, right? But what happens is incredible, and that is this, is that Abraham does not walk through the sacrifice. Out of, out of nowhere, this, this smoking torch, this smoking fire pot 
appear, and whether it's a dream or a vision or, or if it's happening, you know, we're not sure. But it represents the presence of God. It represents God being there, a kind of theophany, right, where God is present in the form of these things. And God passes through the sacrifice. God passes through these two pieces. God is saying something when he does that. When he does not require that of Abraham, but he himself goes through, God is saying something. He's saying, I will keep the covenant. I am making a promise to you. I am binding myself to you. And even more incredible is that if the covenant is broken by either of us, I will suffer the consequences because I am the one who has passed between the sacrifices. And so here's the thing. We go, yeah, but but God can't go back on it, right? God can't be unfaithful to, to the covenant, right? Because God is perfectly faithful. He will not. In fact, he cannot break his promises. So what's going on here? What is God doing? God is saying to Abraham, you are right to fear. You are right because you cannot keep the covenant that I am calling you into. You are too weak. You are too flawed. You couldn't keep it if you tried. And the consequences for not keeping it are too great for you to endure. And yet, God's holiness demands that Abraham enter into this covenant. Nothing short of total and perfect obedience will do. And so what is the solution? God says, I will keep the covenant. He will perfectly keep his promises. And when we break our promises, he will not make us suffer the consequences, but he will keep the covenant for us and pay the price for our disobedience. 1,500 years later, after this story, a full understanding of the aspect of the gospel that we see here is made manifest in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to keep the covenant. He is, as we've already said, he is the new Adam. He's the true Adam. He is the faithful Israel. He would live a life of complete obedience, complete faithfulness. And when his people were unfaithful to the covenant, he would suffer the punishment in their place. His arms would be spread apart. His back would be laid open. His flesh would be pierced. His blood would be shed so that you and I could receive the promises of God. That is the picture of the gospel that we have in this story in Abraham. Probably in no other place except for where we're going to end up on Easter Sunday. God willing, we'll get to meet that day, but we don't know that yet. But in, in, in no other place but maybe the story where Abraham takes Isaac to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, do we see a clearer picture of the cost 
that God pays on our behalf for our sin and for our rebellion in the covenant. You might look at that and say, man, that seems really extreme, Ash. I don't know if that's, that was necessary, right? Was it too much, right? Well, it's interesting the way the text is laid out because we finish chapter 15, and then you might look down in chapter 16. And what is the first lines of chapter 16? Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. And so Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Right? Not two verses later do we have Abraham failing the covenant. Not two verses later do we see Abraham not trusting God. So if you think about it, if Abraham had been held to the covenant, the Bible ends in chapter 15, 16, verse 2. That's the end of it. Abraham would be punished, destroyed, cut off, and that would be the end of the Scriptures. But for what came in chapter 15. But for the promise that God said, I will pay the price for you. That is the hope that we rest in. Again, the whole, the whole idea that we've been talking about in, in each of these passages, in each of these sections as we've gone through the, the life of Abraham, is we've said this. Man, how can we know? How can we know that God has done what he has done and said what he said and is who he says he is and promised what he has promised to us? We know because he has chosen us. Right? We know because he has been gracious to us. We know because he has said, I will count faith as rightness with me. And now we see we can know because God has covenanted with us and said, I will keep the covenant in your place. So what I want to do is just go to the Lord right now. Let's just go to the Lord in a time of prayer in a time of worship, in a time where we let our hearts reflect on these things. In uncertain times, there is no more certain place that you could be than in the covenant of Jesus Christ. To have trusted in him, to have turned from sin, to have aligned your life with Jesus Christ, to have been made right with him through faith, and to know that he has provided for your salvation with his own suffering in life. There's no safer place to be. We can look on all the stuff that's going around in our world, and as followers of Jesus Christ, um, we can know that we have a hope. We can know that we have a future, that if the worst were to come, we would still have Jesus Christ, and that would be all that mattered. So let's go to the Lord right now. Ask him to impress these things upon our hearts to know the gospel that has saved us more truly and to live in light of those things as we walk together in this time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Lord Jesus, grant me the favor of being led by you under the direction of thy providence and thy word. Grant me thy blessings with bitter things to brighten and quicken me, not to depress and make me lifeless. Grant me like Gideon of old way tokens by removing things that discourage me. Grant me the succor beneath the shadow of thy sympathy when I am tempted. Accept my unceasing thanks that I am not cast off from thy hand or dark or a, as a darkened star or a rudderless vessel. Suffer not my life to extend beyond its usefulness. Cast me not under the feet of pride or injustice, riches, worldly greatness, selfish oppression of men. Help me to wait patiently, silently upon thee, not to be enraged or to speak unadvisedly. Let thy mercy follow me while I live, and give me aid to resign myself to thy will. Take my heart and hold it in thy hand. Write upon it reverence to thyself with an inscription that time and eternity cannot erase. To thy grace and care of thy covenant I commit myself in sickness and in health. For thou hast overcome the world, fulfilled the law, finished justifying righteousness, swallowed up death and victory, and taken all power everywhere. Make this covenant with thine own blood in the court of your forgiving mercy, and attach unto thy name in which I believe, for it is sealed by my unworthy mortal hand. We pray these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.